Hi, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of August 24th, 2020. Okay guys, I want you to try to think back to the end of 2019. Going into a new year has a different feel and a different meaning for everyone, but this year felt different. It wasn't just a new year, it was an entirely new decade. It was a time when most of us were doing some pretty big reflecting on what had happened in our lives not only over the last year, but over the last 10 years. What goals we had accomplished, the times we failed, what we gained, what we lost. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of you probably went into 2020 with a new goal, a new plan for yourself, or maybe you were even revisiting a dream that you had for your life. And that's what a new year is all about. Taking the lessons with you from the year that is coming to an end and being excited for everything that is yet to come. Another thing that was happening simultaneously during all this reflection and planning was a story about a virus that had hit overseas. Other countries were starting to shut down. People were being quarantined on cruise ships for weeks and months at a time, and our news feeds began to be flooded with updates and information on COVID-19. But at least for me, it still felt safe here. With no reported cases in the U.S., this couldn't affect us, could it? But then 2020, the new year and new decade we had such high hopes for, took a turn that no one was expecting. Uh, Governor DeWine has come out and strongly recommended uh, the wearing of masks out in public. And so I wanted to spend a few minutes to give you some tips on properly wearing and handling your mask so that you minimize the chance of getting infection with COVID-19. All bars in the state and all restaurants uh, will close at 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, How long this order will be in effect? we don't frankly know. Please know everyone, this this is the real thing. This is not a drill. This is the once in a lifetime pandemic and everything each of us does matters. Literally every day we delay, uh, the data clearly shows that more, more people will die. But some of our kids will get sick and some of our kids will die. We are dealing, I don't know any other way of saying it, we're dealing with life and death and for us, to not take these actions today will cost lives. People will die if we do not make these decisions. And I don't know any other way of saying it.
Things that seemed so normal, like going into the office for work, grabbing a bite to eat with your friends, working out at the gym, getting a haircut at the salon or the barbershop, even sending your kids off to school every day. All of those things came to a screeching halt. Everything changed. Everyone was affected. Fast forward with me to today. We are heading into September. Yes, September. That means fall is less than 30 days away. And while I know it's technically still summertime, I may have drank a pumpkin spice latte this morning. And I'm not going to apologize for it because that's what I do. I get ready for fall way too early because it's my favorite time of year and it makes me happy. And this is something that feels normal to me. Normal. And as some of our normal is starting to become part of our daily lives again, there's one common theme that has lasted this entire pandemic, and that is that there are so many unknowns. What's going on? What is okay to do? What is not okay to do? What should we expect moving forward? And that's the thing. The answers to these questions will continue to change as more time passes and we learn more about COVID-19. And guess what? That's where this show comes in. Every other week, I'm going to sit down with one of Premier Health's leading experts to bring you timely answers on common questions, updates, and everything you need to know during this pandemic. Joining us, socially distanced through the magic of video chat, is Dr. Roberto Colon. Dr. Cologne is Premier Health's Vice President of Quality and Safety. He's trained in internal medicine, and he has truly helped guide us through the last few months. Dr. Cologne, how has your role and your daily routine changed since the pandemic hit the Miami Valley? Um, well, I had just started uh, a new position uh, within our company early in January, so very quickly as I was getting assimilated, um, I ended up getting very, very focused into what was going on with COVID. Um, so very quickly, my 99% of the day was consumed by things related to preparations for COVID, management for COVID, reading about a disease that was brand new. Um, and that was time spent both at work and at home. Uh, so at night, one of the things that I would do is make sure that whatever new literature was coming out, we were able to um, stay up to date with that and create communication um, for everybody. So I think that very early on, COVID really dominated what I was doing day in and day out um, across the system. It really wasn't just one facility. It's ensuring that we were having adequate support for Upper Valley, for AMC, uh, for Miami Valley North, for Miami Valley South, as well as our main campus, and making sure that we realized we had a lot of primary care providers that also required some guidance, some information. Um, all the while knowing that the rules were changing almost weekly as to what we were able to do, that the fund of knowledge every month was very different, that we kept changing directions and having to pivot. Um, so it's been a bit of a whirlwind um, with uh, direction from where we were in February to where we are now. The thing that's been Amazing is how many people have really stepped up to support all of the uh, work that we've done, physicians, nurses, executives, uh, everybody has has really been instrumental in making sure that what we did um, was to protect our patients as well as our staff. So while it was very, very intense getting so focused 
in on COVID, one of the things that I was able to also do is get to meet a lot more people across the entire network uh, for us to be able to facilitate this work. Um, so it, it was a bit of a challenge learning a new job and getting um, so very narrow focus. And now as we have gone through the first six or seven months, realizing that the COVID has not gone away, but because so many things have already been created that have taken on a life of its own, I'm now able to really get to focus back on a lot of the other things like quality, patient safety, uh, that are also so important to the things that we do day in and day out. What trends are you seeing in the data around COVID? Yeah, we've we've seen um, we've seen some reassuring trends, and we've also seen some troubling trends. Um, one of the things that we're seeing that is a bit troubling is the median age for new cases in Ohio continues to drop, um, and that is a marker that the biggest group of new cases that we are seeing are the younger individuals. I think that there is a fallacy out there that young people can't get severe disease, that they can't die from this. And unfortunately, many are very cavalier with how they manage this disease. They don't necessarily take the precautions to take unnecessary risks. And as a result, we're seeing more and more of them becoming infected. We're seeing some of those trends here at the hospital as well, where we're seeing younger individuals as well. One of the reassuring things we're seeing, especially over the last two weeks, is a decline in new cases, which um, is incredibly fortunate. I think um, you know we we were experiencing a high that was beyond what we saw at the peak of disease in April, uh, and we were finally able to come down from that peak. And we're seeing that across our system. We're seeing that across Ohio as well, um, and that is likely an effect of a couple of different things: the social distancing a renewed interest in making sure everybody's wearing masks, but also the fact that we're coming off of a peak of activity, which is one of the other disturbing trends that we're seeing is approximately three to four weeks out from major holidays, we're seeing peaks of disease activity. We saw that following Memorial Day. We saw that following the 4th of July. And one of the worries is that we're likely going to be seeing that following Labor Day as well. The benefit of recognizing those trends is it allows us to prepare. It allows us to make sure that we have adequate resources going forward, but it gives us the ability to communicate to everybody that we recognize there is a danger point around those holidays. And it takes a couple of weeks for those numbers to multiply enough for us to see the peak. So making sure everybody's aware that when we're seeing those holidays or as a potentially dangerous times, making sure that people are more aware. We saw something similar with motor vehicle accidents. We know that anytime there's a, a, a holiday, the number of motor, motor vehicle accidents goes up. So in the military, for example, we would always have a campaign right before a long holiday of notifying everybody for safety, making sure that everybody knew that there were rides available if you were out and you um, had to make sure that you didn't drink and drive, uh, that there were rides for the different airmen. So we've had a lot of practice as a society recognizing some of those trends and communicating. We've learned with COVID that that's probably something that we have to ingrain in everybody as well. So that trend allowed us to be able to recognize that for the disease activity. You mentioned seeing an increase in the number of cases following holidays. Do you think we'll see similar trends as we get ready to send some students back into the classroom? 
I think we probably are going to see a bit of an increase in activity, but I think a lot of it is also going to depend on how good people are with maintaining the social distancing and the facial coverings. The fear that a lot of people are, are reporting is, you know, in Georgia, right after they opened, they had outbreaks and they had thousands of people quarantined. But we also saw pictures from that state where there were groups, large groups of students, and no one was wearing a face. Uh, it was not a mandate. So I think we have to be very careful about generalizing what's going to happen with school. You have to really take that on an individual uh, policy basis. And every, every um, school district is likely going to have a slightly different approach to this. But we have to know that there are going to be increased cases. Why? Because we're congregating. Even though we're going to have those protective measures in place, they're not 100% effective. But what the goal is, is to try to minimize that as much as possible. We can't drive it down to zero, but let's see how close we can get rather than taking the more cavalier approach and go back to school and do whatever you want. We really don't want to be seeing that. So while I do think we're going to see an increase, at least from um, elementary and high school activity, I don't think it's going to be an overwhelming uh, number of new cases. Now, if we start seeing the holidays also timing in with that, return of more sports, then now all of a sudden you start compounding that effect. And we may be seeing a bit of a higher bump that we had anticipated if that were the case. You know, we don't want people being afraid. Um, when we, we get afraid, we avoid doing things. We really need to be having healthy respect for this. We have got to learn to live with it. We have got to learn to adapt. Um, otherwise, everybody's going to go into their own cocoon, and that's just not a, a great way to live. You can do that for a very short period of time, and if we said, oh, this is going to be over in two weeks, that makes sense. But, you know, we've lived with this now for the better part of this year, and it's not going away anytime soon. Hiding in fear isn't the strategy. It's really learning to live with it and trying to make our environment and our day-to-day -day lives as safe as we can make them. Coming up, do kids carry COVID-19 more than adults? What should you expect during recovery if you have it? And the significance of the flu vaccine in the next few months. We'll be right back. We know getting care comes with a little uncertainty right now. But behind these masks, you'll find unwavering dedication, compassion, and protection for you and the care we provide to you. You won't find us backing down. We won't stop. As long as you need us, we'll be here standing strong because it's who we are and care is behind everything we do. Our care lives here. Premier Health. And we're back. The New York Times recently said that kids carry a lot more coronavirus than adults, though this research does not prove that they're more contagious. Does that reflect what you've seen in the Miami Valley? I don't know that we have enough data here from what we see in the Miami Valley to prove one point or the other. And I think we always have to be very careful when we talk about viral shedding and being contagious. Um, you know, children have been at all spectrums uh, of the disease um, activity with COVID. At one point, there was a belief that children could not get COVID, that children could not die from COVID. That's not really true. They may not be affected as much as adults are, uh, and we're seeing that the trends are reflecting that, but children are also getting this inflammatory condition after COVID. 
that adults aren't really seeing in as great a number. So while children may not be getting the COVID manifestations just like adults, they're not going to be excluded. They have very, very, very different manifestations. I think we need to be treating kids very much like we do everybody else, which is they need to be taking the precaution. We need to make sure that they are reducing the chance for passing on the disease just like adults can because of the potential that they are going to be spreading it as much or perhaps even more uh, than some of the adults are. So taking that same precautionary measure that we would for adults really seems to make sense for kids. You mentioned that there are different manifestations when it comes to what people might experience when they have COVID. And it seems that the severity of each case can really vary. I'm curious about after COVID. If someone has the disease and they're recovering, what are some things to expect there or is each recovery different as well? The wide range of post-COVID manifestations depend on how bad COVID was for that person. Was it a mild syndrome or was it more severe? And also what organs were affected? Many of the things that we see after COVID has quote unquote resolved could simply be the damage that the virus has caused, or it could be a byproduct of a complication from the virus. Um, In some cases, we end up seeing people having a lot of shortness of breath because scarring and inflammation that develops in the lungs could go for a long, long time. In others, we may see stroke manifestations because the COVID has caused blood clots that have now caused a stroke. So it's a secondary uh, manifestation. And we don't know how many people are going to have mild strokes versus larger strokes. And the recovery depends on those significantly. And then we end up having the people who have silent damage to the heart, for example. We're seeing that there are some patients who are having this myocarditis where they may not have a lot of symptoms. Um, And depending on how bad the myocarditis is, it's possible that somebody will never know that they had symptoms while other people may end up going into heart failure. Um, And then you have the skin manifestations. Those typically go away for the majority of the people. For those who are lucky enough to have a very mild syndrome, they may just have a little bit of fatigue for a few weeks, very similar to what you would see with a case of influenza. So the spectrum of disease is just very wide on the COVID alone. And then when you throw in, you, the, you have to consider what the person may have had ahead of time, whether you were healthy or you were ill, if you were young or old, if you had a healthy immune system or if you were immunosuppressed. That's going to also determine what kind of complications you may have. So really, it is so varied that there is no such thing as the typical post-COVID manifestation. And what advice would you recommend to patients during and after recovery? I think people have to be recognizing how they are doing. So if you have had an uncomplicated course of COVID um, and you had relatively mild symptoms, your activity should be as tolerated, meaning you're gonna get back into your normal day-to-day activities. And if you were running 10 miles a day right now, you may only be able to run five before you start getting winded. You may have to work up to that. 
But if you notice that as you're returning to your normal activity, you can't quite get there, there may be one of those complications that has to be assessed. So you have to recognize your body and what it's telling you. And for many people, that's going to be following up with your regular provider after you've had a bout of COVID to make sure that they can do an assessment and see, is there additional testing required? Is there anything else that we have to be monitoring? Um, patients are not always going to recognize some of those very subtle changes, but no one is going to know your body better than you. You're going to be able to tell somebody else, hey, I'm, I'm getting fatigued much easier than I was before. I'm getting some chest discomfort. This cough isn't going away. Some of those may be innocuous. Some of them are going to be conditions that require additional evaluation. And that's why we don't ever want anyone to forego advice from their medical professional to be able to tell them on an individual basis what is it that they require for additional testing to be able to protect themselves. Unfortunately, there is nothing anybody can do once they get COVID to prevent the complication or not. Uh, there, there's, there's no uh, treatment. There is no over-the-counter. There is no herbal uh, remedy. When people are having more severe manifestations, then there are some treatment strategies that we have um, to be able to help get them through the illness. But for some of the milder forms where people are at home, unfortunately, there's no other treatment right now that we have to offer um, in large. Dr. Colon, I think that is such an important reminder to people to follow up with their primary care doctor to see if they may need to have additional testing. That's the thing with this is next month, there may be different recommendations because we got more information and we're learning. So what applied to patients in May or in June is very different now. And it may be very different than what we have at the end of the year. That's also why it is so important to make sure that you're always consulting with a healthcare expert to make sure that they can give you the best advice possible. And speaking of changing over time, we are changing from summer and heading into fall, which is also the beginning of flu season. Is it especially important to get your flu shot this year? Uh, it's a great question. And I think it is absolutely important that people get their flu shot when it is available because we want to have as mild a flu season as possible. Um, we want to make sure that we do not have to differentiate at, as much as we can between flu and COVID because they look so similar. And while there are a few symptoms that clearly help separate one from the other, they're very similar. They, they all, in their cardinal symptoms of coughing, shortness of breath, fever, even the GI symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea can, can occur with both it's gonna be very difficult to recognize them. So we wanna to try to minimize the number of people that are gonna get the flu um, this year. One of the things that's also coming out in the literature is that vaccinations for other illnesses may reduce the chance that somebody is going to get COVID. Now, we don't understand all of which viruses fall into that, but if there is a possibility that your vaccine for flu could help you stave off COVID, then that's worth another reason for trying to get the flu vaccine, which should be recommended for most adults right now anyway. Um, we are hoping that some of the things that we're doing for COVID, like the mask wearing, the social distancing, and the hand hygiene are going to reduce transmission for flu as well. 
So if we combine all of those and better vaccinations, we could have a very mild flu season, which would make getting through the COVID season that's coming up a little bit easier for everybody. You mentioned other vaccines that may help prevent getting COVID. Are there any specific vaccines that are being discussed in this arena? So they have actually uh, talked about MMR vaccine. They have talked about some of the pneumonia vaccines. Uh, like I mentioned, there is some thought whether uh, flu can do this. And there's some scientific evidence behind a boosting of the immune system just from vaccinations in general that could help prevent um, infection from COVID. Now, it doesn't mean that it is specifically protecting you from COVID, but it can do it. Even previous illnesses like the common cold, common colds are coronaviruses. They may be able to help some people be protected from COVID-19. Um, again, a lot of this are things that we are learning more about. So I am by no means telling anybody, get the flu shot because it'll protect you from COVID. Um, that's not at all what we're saying, but there is some evidence that some vaccinations may actually confer some boosting of the immune system and potentially reduce the risk for COVID. Um, and since it is beneficial for flu season anyway, that's just another reason to potentially get it. A new study of COVID-19 based on data from a symptom tracker app determined that there are six distinct types of the disease involving different clusters of symptoms, which we've talked a little bit about. What does this mean, and will that change how doctors treat patients who test positive? It's a great question, and while it's really nice that it has helped us identify some of those clusters of symptoms, um, what that doesn't tell us is why. Why do some people get one cluster and other people get the other? Um, can we predict who's going to get what based on the initial symptoms? We don't know that yet. There's also no evidence that the clusters are caused by different strains of COVID. Um, so right now, it's more of a, hmm, that's interesting category, and it may help us um, lump things together. And down the road, I think it'll help us categorize patients better. For right now, I think it has very limited utility in what we do for management, for risk stratification, or even for prognosing. It sounded really interesting when we saw it. They just There wasn't a lot of meat behind how much benefit we could get from that information. If we did find out with more information and a bit more time that there were different types, would that slow down the process for creating a vaccine? It could. Uh, and the reason I say that is it depends a lot of how the vaccine is created. If you were finding a, even though there may be different strains, the general um, viral structure may be similar enough that if you had a common protein among all of them, and that's what's being used to confer immunity, it would work potentially for multiple strains. But you have to understand a little more about the virus to figure that out. So it may depend on the strategy and how different those strains would be one from the other. And I'm sure you saw this in the news, but Governor DeWine recently tested positive for COVID when he was administered an antigen test. But later the same day, he tested negative twice with a PCR test. Is one type of test better or more reliable than the others? Yeah, so so that's another one of those more complex um, questions than initially it seems. So the interesting thing is the antigen test 
tends to have a low sensitivity. And sensitivity is being able to pick up the disease when it is there. So when you have a low sensitivity, you have more false negatives. That means it may not really have a good threshold for detecting the virus. And that's actually something we've known about antigen tests for quite some time. But the specificity, that is, when it is positive, how often is it really positive? The false positive rate tends to actually be really good for most of those tests. So it was a little bit surprising that we saw the false positive test with an antigen, although it's not unheard of. And one of the things that we are seeing about a lot of the newer tests, and like the antigen test, is that how they're manufactured, the control for the solution where they are being mixed, or even human error, because they're performed at the bedside, are more likely to lead to inaccurate results than a PCR. A PCR tends to have actually, there's a lot of variability from one PCR to the other, but the one that we use at Premier tends to have a very high sensitivity in the 98 to 99% and a high specificity, almost 100%, meaning that the chance that there's a false negative or a false positive is very, very, very low. But you have to also consider that the disease itself can affect the test. Meaning if you have somebody very early in the disease and you tested them, it's possible that they haven't yet multiplied enough copies in their body to be able to detect it. So that could be a problem with a lot of disease. And we set the goal for how we screen those very discreetly. It also goes back at targeting a population. And if you have a population that has a very low level of disease, a test with low sensitivity, meaning false negative, is likely to generate more false negatives because there's less people to actually really manifest the disease, as opposed to when you go into an area that has a high prevalence of disease, the screening test may be better. And that's why so far they have generally been used in a hot zone, where you have an outbreak of disease and you can rapidly test everybody and be able to cohort those people who are positive. As we are progressing with COVID and testing schemes, we are coming up with antigen tests that are improving in their accuracy. And the goal is to be able to have an antigen test that is almost as good, if not as good as our PCR, because it can be done so much faster. And that really is, is the goal is if we can have a test that we can all get back in 15 minutes and have good reliability, that's what we all want. And that's really, I think, what we're all trying to achieve. Dr. Colon, is there anything else that you'd like to share about the current state of this pandemic? I think the one thing that I would want everybody um, to remember to take um, to take with them is everyone has to be a part of the solution in here. There is no medicine right now. Vaccines are still months and months away from being available to everybody and have an effect. We have the power to be able to change how this disease continues to propagate. Please wear your masks all of the time. Try to keep social distancing and be safe. Thank you so much, Dr. Cologne. So wear your masks and keep washing your hands and know that however you're feeling right now, it's okay. Isolation is very difficult. We're all facing different challenges right now. 
Make time for self-care. Call your friends and family and say a kind word. And keep making goals and revisiting the dreams that you had for 2020. And remember, we are all in this together. In every step along your journey, our care lives right beside you. And our goal is for us to get through this. You know, we will get through this. I don't know how long it's going to take, but we will get through this. You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com slash COVID-19. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.